This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Courtney, we're back once again with another episode. We are. It's a very exciting one. Um, so we have Dr. I think Dr. Erica will correct me if, if I'm wrong, but yep. we'll go for Dr. now, Dr. Erica Bozio. Um, and I met Erica when I moved into the Medical Research Foundation for my work, and she's such a lovely person. And I was like, you know what? We've got to have her on because it's such a different area that we're, we're used to. Um, yeah, so she's a really fabulous person. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is way above my pay grade, but she's going <laughs> to talk to us about building. Um, synthetic body parts, essentially. Basically, yeah. But, like, with real cells. It's, yeah, it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, but, so she's a geneticist and kind of, a, a, I call her a lab person. Um, so she works in the lab and uh, I'll let her explain it far more better than I can. Mm. Um, but because it's such a different area of what people would consider health and public health, um yeah, she's such a great person to kind of explain all the stuff that you would do in a lab. Yeah, excellent. So we'll let people enjoy the conversation. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so uh, today we've got a, a guest from, from my workplace, uh, which is really, really exciting. So we have um, Erica on. Uh, thank you for coming and, and recording this podcast with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, <laughs> do you want to just introduce yourself to the audience and a bit of background about who you are and what you do? Yep, sure. Um, thanks, Courtney, for inviting <laughs> me here and Craig. <laughs> this is going to be a bit of fun, I think. Yeah, yeah I hope. Definitely. I'm Dr. Erica Bozio. So I'm a senior lecturer at UWA um, with a strong research um, background as well. Most of what I do these days revolves around emergency medicine um, and I teach within uh, the School of Biomedical Sciences at UWA, so it's still within the kind of pre-med degree, teaching the integrated medical degree there. Specialising in immunology because I love immunology. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's my bag. Uh, And the research is all about sepsis and anaphylaxis and all fun things emergency. Did you always want to be a researcher? Yeah, definitely. Really? Always. Like even as a kid? Yep. Yep. I always just loved science. I was always just kind of drawn to figuring out how things worked. And it was usually biological stuff as well. So I've kind of just followed my nose. Um, doing science at school and then getting engrossed in biology and chemistry and all those fun things. And I just kept doing what I liked doing and ended up here. Oh, nice. So, yeah, yeah I kind of always wanted to be a yeah. science nerd. Yeah. Okay. Um, vaguely or quickly, fleetingly considered doing medicine, but I figured I wanted to be the person behind the scenes rather than the one yeah. taking taking front of stage with patients because... Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit soft. I don't think I'd be able to handle <laughs> yeah, <laughs> handle being the patient-centred or patient-fronting person. I think yeah. anyone that's considered science has always gone, I, I could be a doctor. Mm, nah. Yeah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> too hard. Yeah, too hard. <laughs> so, so did your undergrad start with um, some sort of science degree or? Yeah, I did a Bachelor of Science first. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, did you do it here? Yep. Yep, nice. Yeah. Did everything here yep. and then took off for a while. Yep. But yeah, did Bachelor of Science 
my my major was microbiology and molecular biology. Mm-hmm. So I did all the ologies. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, cool. went straight into the PhD. Did the PhD okay. with an immunology focus. Yep. And then ended up where I am. Right. <laughs> so what? Wait, what did you do with your PhD? What was the the aim? PhD. Do you remember? Yeah, of yeah. course I do. <laughs> <laughs> Takes up so much of your time. So uh, yeah, well. It was low-dose oral interferon therapy okay. and using okay. it as a kind of prophylactic to target viral infections mm-hmm. and see whether it could actually be protective in a mouse model messing yeah. around okay. with, with those little critters. Yep. Um, but that was fun. Mm-hmm. It was quite the learning curve, yeah. as they tend to be. And do you want to um, explain that title for people who don't know anything <laughs> about immunology? <laughs> okay, interferons. Interferons are something that your body naturally produces yep. when you develop a viral infection. It's just one of the first first molecules that your cells make to kind of set up this protective state yep. in yep. all of your membranes around the body. So the theory is that if we can harness what the body does naturally, i.e. making these interferons and just Mm -hmm. kind of give yourself a little bit of those Mm. um, prophylactically, so before you get sick, Mm -hmm. then the idea is you're going to set up that protective state in your cells and then not be susceptible to catching viral infections. Okay. Okay. So quite famously, interferons were used in hep C treatment, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But in massive doses. Yeah. So that was really, really high dose. So when I'm saying low dose... The doses we were giving to mice were kind of 10 international units per day, mm-hmm. right, which in the human trials that they did after that work finished or after my work finished, they were doing 100, 150 units a day okay. for a kind of a week or 10 days. Hep C is 5 million units okay. or more injected. Yeah. So it's a completely different... So what does that do to somebody then when they're getting such a high dose? Like, it must be <laughs> all sorts of horrible things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the side effects are pretty toxic yeah okay so Which you is feel why they don't you feel really it. really unwell yeah i mean you only use it for people that are yeah very very unwell sort of a last resort in that sort of way thing. yeah and so the difference between that and the current anti-retroviral therapies that they use for hep c oh, i don't know if very 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 different okay yeah. i don't know much about hep c virus yep um i only know how it relates to what i was doing in doing previously in my phd mm-hmm. in okay. terms of understanding what high dose versus low dose oral interferon therapy yep. is but i don't know anything about Hep C treatments these days. Did they also try it for HIV back in the day before? They oh, had the, yeah, they definitely yeah. would have. Yeah, they would okay. have tried everything, and yeah. that would have been one of the one things of the, on their list. Just make people sick. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, like most of those um, types of biologics, mm-hmm. we don't. U- our body doesn't make them in high doses, so it kind of yep. seems a bit counterintuitive to use them therapeutically okay. in high doses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they work in the body at a certain dose, then that's probably what the body needs and right. no more. <laughs> so, okay. Because we, we recently had Anna Novak on, who you probably know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she her. was talking about immunotherapy for cancer. And is this yeah. in that sort of family? Immunotherapy. Uh, immunotherapy. immunotherapy. Oh, immunotherapy. Yeah. Oh, immunotherapy. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, not the same sort of thing. So immunotherapy oh. is where you're driving and forcing your immune response to target the cancer. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to using a protein your body naturally makes as a as a drug, mm-hmm. right? Here you're in immunotherapy, what you're trying to do is, you know, T cells and B cells, those fabulous little cell guys, mm-hmm. they are the ones that kill virus infected cells mm-hmm. and mimic antibodies 
that will then help to kill the virus-infected cells or the tumour cells if they are tumours, if that's what you want to kill. So by doing immunotherapy, you're trying to switch those T cells and B cells on to target and recognise the target. In in Anna's case, it's a cancer cancer cell. But you could similarly, you know, that's what vaccinations do. Vaccinations are trying to stimulate your T cells and B cells Mm -hmm. to target a virus or to target an infection. Right. And immunotherapy is trying to drive them to attack cells, i.e. a tumour cell, and Mm -hmm. not any other type of cell. But you're still trying to harness that body's potential and force it in a particular direction. Okay. Excellent. So I guess that begs the question then, um, what is the sort of illness that you're trying to target Mm. with your work? So this stuff is completely different to that. (laughs) So um, at the moment there's a couple of main areas that we're doing research on. Probably the the most fun one for me at the moment is sepsis. Yep. And I say fun, but it's not very fun at all. (laughs) Not fun for the patient, but it's interesting. It's really interesting from a research perspective, but it's definitely not uh, a fun illness to have. So sepsis is um, basically an immune response gone absolutely berserk and out of control. Uh, It ends up causing massive inflammation and resulting in organ failure and dysfunction and, and... and yeah. loss of limbs and loss of organs yeah. and all that sort of fun stuff. So body fighting <clears throat> with itself basically, right? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, but it's the end result of an infection. Right, okay. So you've got an you, you, the process starts with someone catching something and it could be absolutely anything. It could be a bacterial infection, it could be, you know, a respiratory infection or a skin infection, it could be a mm. virus. Um, so the cause varies yep. widely. Um and then for some reason, and why we don't completely understand, that immune response just keeps going, doesn't get switched off right. um, and becomes deleterious. It just starts, you know, compounding on itself mm-hmm. and will eventually cause this shock syndrome mm-hmm. and organs start to fail yep. and people do really badly. <laughs> yeah. And there are lots of different manifestations that come, you know, hand in hand with, with sepsis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think what most people think about when they think of sepsis is an old person's disease, but it can actually affect absolutely anyone. Yeah. Well, and so and is it's it, a bit scary when it when it does affect someone who isn't the classical true. old person who has had pneumonia for a while and is mm-hmm. starting to shut down. Yeah. So it's almost like a malfunction of your immune system and that it just keeps going? Well, yeah. Yeah. And we're not really sure how to turn it off. Mm. We've we've actually had uh, Stephen McDonald and mm-hmm. company on talking about yep. this. Yeah, got a, a Stephen is yeah. Stephen and I work very closely together. Okay. He's the clinical lead for the project, and yep. I'm the lab person. Yeah, okay. Yep. I, I figured that might be the case. Yeah, the same <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. but that, that's very interesting in a trial itself. Is that um, you know Stephen. Uh, handles a lot of the clinical side, enrolling patients, all that kind of thing. But there has to be that lab equivalent. So how does the lab kind of fit into that clinical trial? So there's all those questions that remain unanswered that you just can't answer in the clinical setting. Um, There are so many things we would like to try Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of trying to, you know, help patients do better when they have sepsis. I mean, we don't know what the best treatments are. Um, Of the treatments we are doing, we're not even sure that they are beneficial or harmful or not doing anything at all. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, 
doctors are doing the best they can, targeting the symptoms and trying to control those. What is missing is a way to actually test those ideas outside of the clinical setting because we can't expose patients to treatments untested. And you especially can't try and do a clinical trial um, on patients in the ED. At the moment, that's Mm -hmm. been a very, very contentious issue. And although we have some really nice ideas about things that may be helpful to patients, Mm -hmm. we don't really have any preclinical evidence to kind of provide some evidence to the ethics committees and to the hospital boards to tell them we've got some some belief that this is going to help so without that we can't move forward so that's where the lab comes in we try Mm -hmm. and do some testing measure some parameters come up with some ideas and theories and back that up with evidence that we gain from our experiments Mm -hmm. okay yes it's it's a interesting topic there's a guy going through cancer treatment at the moment you may have seen in the news he's a melanoma researcher and he's got a brain cancer and he is basically trying to apply some of his work from melanoma to the treatment he's receiving for his brain cancer which is novel um and he's he was on the radio this morning i I remember his name hopefully before we finish (laughs) anyway he was given like nine months to live basically and he's still going he's He's in his (laughs) mid-50s and i don't know how long he's been on the treatment for but i think it could be 12 or 18 months now and obviously you know barry marshall comes to mind as well you know medical ethics and research ethics is a is a it's a difficult area Mm -hmm. he obviously chose to infect himself in order to prove that his theory worked yep um do you ever have anyone come into the ed that is basically a death store and their family are willing to try anything and they you know they may be a candidate for i wouldn't know if that's the case (laughs) because i don't have any direct contact with the patients yeah but even if that was the case even if somebody came to the ed and said we'll try anything Mm. i don't think there is an avenue for someone in the ed to say do whatever you want with me because Mm. a clinician still can't yeah do that yeah Um, unless there is a clinical trial running that they can say okay we can put you into this um, or they have time up their sleeve where they can say, all right, we'll try and do something but still get a clinical exemption for us being able to do X, Y and Z. You still mm. need time to set those things up. Yeah. But there are always processes that yeah. need to be followed. Yeah, okay. Unless you're a doctor yourself and you just decide to... Treat yourself. Treat yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect if you're needing a treatment that serious that you probably aren't capable of treating yourself in that state. So No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, okay. So I think the hardest thing with understanding sepsis is that we really don't have a good way of modelling it mm-hmm. um, with people mm-hmm. or, or with in the laboratory. Because it's unpredictable? Is that the...? It's very, very unpredictable. Yeah. So um, everyone presents differently? Yeah. Yeah, okay. usually. I mean, because almost any type of infection can cause it and you have no idea how long those people have been infected for. Somebody mm. might have COVID, for example, mm-hmm. and after a week of having pretty bad COVID, develop sepsis and, and need treatment. Mm. Meanwhile, somebody else might have um, a, a skin infection and they've ignored it for a month, yeah. maybe longer, and all of a sudden they're not feeling well and they their blood pressure starts dropping and, mm. you know. So mm. it's insidious. We just have no idea of knowing 
how long the infection's been on board and how a particular person's immune system is going to react. Yeah. So it's really, really difficult to model. Mm. So when when you're trying to capture people for a clinical trial you, for about sepsis, you're probably getting them at the very late stage then. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would make it tricky. But we are <laughs> we are capturing people that have sepsis yeah. in our one of our clinical trials or clinical um yeah, we call this a trial, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah, our critical yeah. illness and shock study. Okay. Um so within that study we have approval to biobank samples from patients with many different forms of critical illness. Okay. And sepsis is one of those. Mm-hmm. So people will present to the ED we can enrol them in that study and collect blood samples from them. All we're doing is observing what's going on with those patients. We're not actually trialling anything on them, but the information we get from those blood samples Mm. really help us to kind of work through what's going on in those patients. Mm. The difficulty is even though we've got hundreds of or we've collected hundreds of samples from people with sepsis so far, Mm. every single one of them is different. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know, we've done biomarker studies trying to have a look to see whether any of these, you know, biomarkers of interest have patterns that we can see in all these patients. Nothing holds up. Just random, hey? They all have these biomarkers, but they don't have the same levels. The same levels, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's a genetic component to it at all. Well, that's one avenue of research, mm. one of many. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of many. But it is throwing mud at the wall, isn't it? Yeah, like, it just, kind of is. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what we're focusing on at the moment is, you know, the late stages. So we know that pe- when people do develop sepsis and start showing signs of organ dysfunction or organ failure, that their blood vessels have started to dysfunction and fall apart, okay. and specifically they're the micro vessels. So they're... You know, people with sepsis, people with meningitis, for example, people know that case really well. Mm-hmm. They lose extremities. You mm-hmm. know, they tend to be at risk of losing fingers and toes or arms or legs yep. if it gets really bad. And that's because those fine blood vessels that are in the extremities are the first to fall apart. Right. So that microvas- we call that microvascular dysfunction. And microvascular dysfunction is a feature of pretty much all critical illnesses. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do in the lab is try and study microvascular dysfunction to see if we can somehow um, understand what's going on in people with sepsis and then perhaps develop ways to either repair the mm-hmm. damage that's taken place or prevent that damage from actually happening if we can catch it early enough. So how do you even study micro blood vessels oh, <laughs> without them being in a patient? <laughs> <laughs> so that's something we're working on. Yeah. <laughs> nice leading quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the biggest or my, my most fun projects at the moment is trying to build a model of micro of human microvessels. So I'm working with biomedical engineers from the Perkins and from UWA mm-hmm. um, and talking to lots and lots of different people, physiologists and physicists and um, surgeons to mm-hmm. kind of put together a model where we can develop like a microvessel on a chip device. Okay. So grow microvessels, human microvessels from human tissue mm-hmm. in a, you know, device that we can culture in the lab. Okay. And then perfuse it and yep. have it, you know, have liquids flowing through it mm-hmm. in real time. And then we can use that system to test things. So that's mm-hmm. the aim. Yeah. Right. We're at the point where we're growing microvessels, we've got them um under control in the lab, but yep. now we have to work out 
how we're going to design our device to actually perfuse perfuse yeah, those okay. perfuse those micro vessels and yeah. then enable us to right. test all our different things. So just to give us a bit of a um, a point of reference, what does what does a micro vessel look like? Size and that sort of thing. Can you see it with the naked eye or not really? Okay. So uh, a micro vessel, I think by definition they're smaller than two hundred microns. So two hundred microns is a fifth of a millimeter. Okay. Pretty small. That's pretty small. Yeah. Yep. So they're easy enough to see under a microscope. Yeah. <laughs> Much easier to see than a bacterium or um, or a cell, uh, mm-hmm. but they're still very very small. Yep. So culturing those has its challenges. Mm. But if you can do tissue culture in theory, you can grow micro vessels. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. probably been the easiest part of the process for me. I think getting those micro vessels mm. actually growing in culture. Yeah. But it's now controlling them that is going to be the hard part getting them to yeah. do do they just what we want do they to just do. grow mm. chaotically they do so do they just grow everywhere they grow yeah. everywhere right. um mm. the fun thing is that they will reach out for each other and form naturally just gravitate towards forming networks with each other mm-hmm. okay. so we don't have to work too hard to make that happen mm-hmm but what we are going to have to figure out is how to create that circuit that enables liquid in and liquid out um, yeah. and enables us to watch them under the microscope. Yeah. I mean, the, to mecha- watch how things do. the mechanics of pumping liquid through them, for want of a better term, like to find something that's fine enough to, you know, I mean, what do you, Not how do you do it? Them. I just don't yeah. understand. Like, you just put liquid in there and it sort of travels <laughs> through. Or? <laughs> and then you turn it over and then hope that it goes through. Like an hourglass or something, eh? Well, they'll naturally form with a hollow centre. So they'll naturally form that way and they'll connect up with each other. So the idea is that we force them to connect up to a larger conduit. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then that connects up, up, up until we can connect it up into, you know, a a microfluidics pump. Yeah, okay. And then we can have that under control. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what we're planning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's all kind of a work in process. And, and I'm assuming this will be publicly on display at SciTech or something. <laughs> it could be, yeah. yeah. It'll be fun to watch, It'll be though. a great one to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the plan. And then if we have something like that that is made of human cells and human tissues, then obviously the responses we're going to get will mean something mm. yeah. and really can be considered like a preclinical model that yep. can help us develop that evidence we need to bring new tre- treatments to patients. Yeah. So would you be able to give these cells sepsis? <laughs> Is that the plan? That's the plan. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> right. That's really interesting. So, so the idea would be to give them the infection and then watch the degradation process? So either putting in bacteria and seeing what happens there because yeah. sepsis is bloodstream infection mm-hmm. um, or bacterial products. So yeah. knowing what it is um, from that particular infection that causes inflammation or causes those responses to happen in the cells mm-hmm. um, and adding those products into the mix and then just watching what happens to them over time. And yeah. then, you know, again, as we can watch those microvessels um, dysfunction or degrade, so the dysfunction we're going to be observing would be um, watching the cells on the inside come apart and detach from each Mm. other, which means fluids can come out of the blood vessels Mm -hmm. being leaky. So that's what happens when people, um, when their blood pressure drops and they become hypertensive, Mm -hmm. it's because those blood vessels have become leaky. They're not not functioning properly. Mm -hmm. 
and you'll get swelling in the area and and all the rest. So mm. we we should be able to see that. Yep. In in micro vessels that are falling apart. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we can test that using various fun lab tools like fluorescent dyes and things and watch yep. them permeate. I can see that being applicable <clears throat> to more than just sepsis. Absolutely. So mm. the the one thing for me that comes to mind is heart failure with their because they they experience quite a lot of swelling. Mm-hmm. Um because they can't retain fluids. So that kind of thing would be helpful with that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be a way to test any type of treatment you want to apply to the vasculature. Mm. And I guess mm. we're interested in microvessels, but there's no reason it couldn't be, you know, that same system couldn't be applied to a large vessel mm-hmm. um, or even smaller vessels like capillaries if you can grow them as well. Yeah. Yep. So... And then you could use it to study anything. Okay, my interest is sepsis, but if someone's mm. looking at, at plaques and atherosclerosis, mm. yeah. you could, I mean, people know how to induce plaques in blood vessels. Right. We have some blood vessels growing, you induce plaques in them, you can study how yeah. large they get, how they cause their damage. You can do all that sort of stuff, provided yeah. that we can image them well mm. enough. Yeah. I mean, the, the possibilities for things that are sort of untouchable at the moment, like MS and... That sort of thing just mm. seems mind blowing. If if you can get that to that point, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, could be some huge leaps then, forward. Then I think I think even bigger in the sense that, you know, people are doing regenerative medicine by building kidneys and building yeah. organs and building, you know, but you need to vascularize those. Yeah. So you could test these things by creating one big circuit of you know blood vessels connected to. A kidney culture connected yeah. to a liver culture mm. connected yeah. to, and you can see the effects Even the brain. on yeah. multiple organs from the treatment that you do on the microvessels. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. It could, yeah, pretty crazy, <laughs> crazy science things. I can sort of hear a Nobel Prize knocking. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to build it first. <laughs> so, what stage are you up to now? Is it uh, from what I've heard before? So we've got like lots a, of plans. Yeah, um, I've got blood vessels or micro vessels growing reproducibly in the lab. They're yep. forming networks with each other and um, they're growing beautifully. So that's where I'm up to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm now working on imaging those um, and trying to make sure that I can see all the things I want to see in them, mm-hmm. right, and then work out a way to, you know, design that into the chip, mm-hmm. yeah, into the bigger chip. I think we've got a perfusion pump. We've got our microfluidics pump ready to go. It's just a question of working out how those microvessels grow. When do you actually turn on the perfusion? Yeah. Um, because the signals you give to those cells as they're growing will change what they look like. Mm-hmm. If you think about, you know, how a fetus grows, how a baby grows, the, the blood, the heart doesn't start pumping till I think 12 or 15, to kind of 12 to 14 days mm-hmm. post, you know, fertilisation. Mm-hmm. So for all that time prior, there's no flow. Yeah. Okay. Right. And I think when we're trying to build a tissue like this um, and you're growing new blood vessels, you have to think about what the influence of that flow is on how they grow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So there will be a right time to connect the flow up. There'll be a right time to drop off growth factors. Uh-huh. Um so that you stop them sprouting willy-nilly and have them maturing rather than doing that. So they're all the things we're working through right now. So they basically go through like a baby, preteen, teenager stage and then when they reach adult stage is when you put the flow through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. okay. (laughs) All right, that makes sense. And and having that, I think, you know, my 
understanding at the moment is that you switch that flow on and that's critical to their maturation. So them sensing that flow will tell them, okay, you're connected, stop sprouting, stop Mm -hmm. growing, Mm -hmm. right, and start maturing. So I have to make sure that I've got my network established first, like they're all talking to each other and they're all holding hands before I turn that bump on. Mm. So there's a few things to work out before I can get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming that this process will be repeated a number of times before it gets refined enough. And I'm assuming also that you collect data on each of those yep. developments so that you can maybe start to see patterns and Absolutely. maybe predict what's going to happen in future. Yeah. Absolutely. That'll, okay. be, that'll be the, the yeah. game. How long okay. do you think that process is going to take? Oh, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that I could actually have a a good model within a, a couple of years if I have funding yep. and if I have people working on it all the time then I think yep. in a couple of years we'll have something we can absolutely use yeah nice mm. but yeah at the moment I don't have money and I don't have because <laughs> <laughs> well, research is hard yeah yeah and I think that's that's something uh, a little different to maybe what Craig and I face is that uh, mm. I reckon in public health and more your clinical and your patient facing you're more likely to get funding because it's easily translation translational translatable translatable yeah that's yeah. the word um <laughs> whereas for lab-based stuff it's probably a bit trickier it's it's a lot trickier yeah yeah it's hard for for an individual on the street to relate to that process yeah. versus and you know us like telling them like 25 percent of people have this problem and we yeah. this is how yeah. we fix it or whatever yeah and i think yeah. that's the one of the big challenges yeah that lab research faces mm-hmm. mm. okay look our, our podcast is has got tentacles everywhere so mm. excellent you, you never, know, <laughs> never know whose ears you're going to end up in <laughs> yeah well look i think we've got so many big problems that we need basic research yep. to deal with and i've you know i think it's becoming pretty obvious these days that basic science is kind of uncool and not really considered as <laughs> very fundable by mm-hmm. government because right. it's not going to give them the silver bullet tomorrow. It's not a cancer pill or right? yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take time and yeah. they want something that's going to give them results yeah, quickly. The, the headlines and, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, they want the headlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they they forget the importance of it. Yeah. But I think if we we can't just jump into a clinical trial just because we think that using this brand new resuscitation fluid is going to be the game changer. It has right. to get tested first. Yeah, that's so right. How do you test it? If you test it in a mouse, it's not going to tell you anything about how it works in a person. That's right, mm. yeah. Test it in a, in a rat or a dog, still not going to tell you <laughs> how it works in a, in a person. And and it's scary just how many times people have made that leap and then found either zero effect yep. or bad toxic effects mm. in something that works mm fabulously in in a rodent model yeah we can't do that we need to test it in the right way before we can go to patients and that requires bench research which isn't sexy i'm curious about funding for that um, obviously, our go-to in public health is usually NHMRC and then maybe ARC if it's you know nuanced enough to fit into the ARC. Yep. So who, where do you go for basic research, like lab we research funding? We still have to go to the NHMRC. Right. Okay. Okay. But the pot is very small, yep. and WA is probably the least favourite of the NHMRCs. Right. Um, 
recipients. Okay. <laughs> right. Is there a particular reason that we've identified for that? There are many reasons. Yeah. Um, but I think in WA it's basically the separation. They right. don't see us. We're out of sight, out mm-hmm. of mind. They don't. I think most of the people who run the NHMRC, they're all Eastern States people um, and yep. they kind of know each other a lot mm. more than they do mm. the West Australian people. We're just a little bit too detached right, from okay. what is their system. I still see it as an Eastern State system yeah. that mm. has kind of allowed WA to tag along and allowed Tasmania <laughs> to jump in and allowed the yeah. NT, you know. Yeah. Okay. But basically it's the Eastern States who, who manage that pot of money. But right. then even then with the NHMRC, only a very small part of that would go to lab-based because, yep. like, I don't remember mm-hmm. the last exactly. lab-based project I saw on there. But mm. You think the entire NHMRC budget is not even $900 million a mm. year. Mm. And when you think that a single project is probably going to ask at least one but possibly between one and two or one and five, depending yeah. on the type of project it is. That's not a lot of projects. No, that's right. It's probably 200-ish a mm-hmm. year that can, can get funded. Yeah. So if you think about that, 200 projects in the whole country yeah. can get funded in a year mm. and there are lots of us trying to yeah. put our hands up for money from that pot. Yeah. Not many people actually can find success in a system like that. No, that's right. The success it's rates not, are low. It's not designed to be there for... Yeah for who would actually help. Obviously, mm. something like this would probably have international appeal as well, you know, from yeah. a broader, you know, lab research community. So have you ever applied to, like, America or the UK or any of these not. places? Okay. I have not. I've always kind of been a little bit scared of yeah. trying to do that. <laughs> uh, the, the American programs, the ones that I think we can apply for, tend mm. to be really huge with massive, massive requirements. For, right. And... They yeah. still look at track record and they're still going to be looking at publication records and, and all those sorts of things. And Yeah. If you're yeah, not okay. connected to the right people, you've still got a slim chance, especially yeah. being from the outside, okay. of getting yeah. support from them. It's still just – it's just hard. Yeah, no, it sounds like The funding like model is just hard and broken and doesn't work. Right. So are you guys sort of relying on WA Health at the moment? Is that – or who, who funds your – At the moment, I have – um, a near miss grant from the last mm-hmm. NHMRC application yep. that I applied for, and that came from the WA Department of Health. Yep. Um, but that finishes in November. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, yeah. you're applying for more grants. I now. will be next yeah. year. Yeah. But the system is you apply next year for funding for the year after. Yeah. So that means next yeah. year I don't really have a lot of resources to keep this project going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though I have loads of people interested and yeah, and all the right people on board to help. Mm. It's probably going to grind to a very slow pace. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And are, are you implying for an investigator grant and or a project grant? It'll be an ideas grant. An ideas grant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That'll be that'll be the avenue I try yeah. for. Okay. <laughs> but we'll yeah. see. I mean, I think the project's amazing. Mm. I think the team behind it means it's guaranteed to actually work. Yep. Yeah. Um. But outstanding is not good enough. So, <laughs> in a system, yeah. in a system yeah. where you know all grants that are funded or that are classified as outstanding don't get funded, mm. it's really you know it's a, it's, it's a lottery. Yeah. yeah, it is a lottery. 
Yeah, so, so it seems like one that kind of almost, there, there almost needs to be like a multidisciplinary research team because you're going to touch potentially all these different areas of yep. medicine. So mm. it's like you need ED people, you need people, you know, endocrinologists and, you know, all the, you know, onc- oncologists, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. On, yep. on the grant. So mm. it could be like bigger than Ben-Hur. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah. But, you know, my idea, it starts small. It starts with us in the lab. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got my ED team with yep. us for, for the ride. I've got physiologists, mm-hmm. biomedical engineers, um, biologists, uh, I think I probably need a physicist or two, <laughs> okay. yeah. but you know we'll start we'll start with us and yeah. then we'll work our way up. Yeah, I mean the dream would be to have these micro vessels growing in a chip that we could perfuse with human blood mm-hmm. and actually mm. test the whole thing from. And then you could test work. everyone's blood sample, right? You could make it, yeah, a little mm. bit more patient specific, yeah, mm. or not. But at least you know you can see, you know, how the system copes mm. under mm. true physiological conditions yeah. and actually you know if you're going to add a resuscitation fluid to that and you want to know how it works it's mixing in with human blood mm-hmm. and you can see what happens yeah, as, okay. as that as that all goes down mm. Mm. Oh, uh, definitely looking forward to hearing how it progresses because mm. it's yeah I know it's tough you know yeah yeah, but, but we all want it. Yeah, yeah. we all want this like model. All you need is a couple of like little victories to yeah. bring you into Push the spotlight a bit, and then I think you'll find that naturally interest will build. A generous and benefactor. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, you know, like Rain That's or one true. of these yeah. funders. Yeah, you wouldn't be surprised, or like the Parent Institute. Um, yeah, there's loads of. Again, that, yeah. it all comes down to track record. Yeah, Craig. Yeah, and yeah, I haven't had a lot. Okay. <laughs> that's just I haven't time. had a lot of yeah. success. Yeah. That just takes time as well. Yeah, yeah okay. One good project. So, how on earth did you get into that? How did I come up with a crazy idea? Yeah. Mm. Uh, okay. <laughs> this was me being very crazy, as scientists tend to get. Yeah. Um, I think there were a, a few of us in in our room talking about results, and Stephen was in there with us, and. We were looking at the latest biomarker data and it's like, but we just don't get it. Why does this happen here and why is that not happening in this person? And we think this is going to be what it is, but it just doesn't hold up. And it's like, because we just haven't got a clue. Mm-hmm. And so we started philosophising about what we would actually need to do in the next test to actually figure that out and to actually dissect what was underlying those responses that we were seeing that just didn't make any sense. And I said, oh, but this, we just need a model. <laughs> I'm like, I can, I can do a rat model, Stephen. I can. And he goes, no, nah, not doing rats, not doing animals. <laughs> They're not people, mm-hmm. not yeah. interested. I went, okay, I'll build a human one then. <laughs> and it kind of snowballed from mm-hmm. that. And it's been probably three or four or five years since I made that crazy statement, but mm-hmm. I kind of didn't just let it go. Mm. Keep talking to people, keep coming up with the next iteration. We started off playing around with um, polyacrylamide gels and making channels in them to seed endothelial cells into to kind of flow those through. So endothelial cells are the cells that are on the inside of your blood vessel. Okay. So just by growing those in a channel under Mm -hmm. flow, could we see anything? It's like, oh, that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. We've got to go bigger. (laughs) And it kind of just kept evolving from there. But Mm. 
that yeah, that crazy idea started when we just couldn't figure out how to design yeah. the next experiment to try and understand what those results are telling us. Mm. Yeah, wow. I think um, part of the challenge is explaining to people who aren't familiar with this area how how you even do it, you know, so they can mm. understand, you know, what's involved. Sometimes I don't even understand. <laughs> 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 I want it to do this. How do I get yeah, it to do, do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. At least you know what the outcome is. Like you know yep. what the outcome is meant to be. And right. So then every time you just get a little bit closer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Exactly. Um, so probably um, could pivot a little bit here because you just brought up animal models. And right. I believe you've got a bit of a history working with oh, yeah. animal models. Just a little one. Yeah. <laughs> and some of it's overseas and some... Yep, yeah. yep. Okay. Do you want to talk us through a little bit about your experience there? My experience there. All right. I took off... I did my PhD, finished that many, many moons ago. Um, worked for about 18 months before getting a job offer to go into Italy, over to Italy and do a postdoc there. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be a two-year two-year adventure, which turned into six. (laughs) (laughs) Not a bad place to be. (laughs) Not a bad place to be. No, it was really, really good. So my experience before that, so, you know, I started off with the interferons and stuff, and then in my first kind of short postdoc that I did here in Perth, um, we were working with myoblasts, which are muscle stem cells. Mm -hmm. So they are the cells that will become muscle tissue. So I was culturing those to develop um, some work for another model that we were doing with mice. Um, So I had that kind of background, growing these stem cells. um, I did lots and lots of different cell culture. And the job in Italy was um, trying to put together a research, a new research project to investigate the use or the utility of um, porcine islets for the transplantation and cure of diabetes. Mm-hmm. So they thought my experience with all the cell culture I had done up to that point was enough. So okay. they took me on um, and I learnt in a very quick, rapid way <laughs> how to isolate islets from um, uh, piglets and also from mice um, and, and test those islets in, in models, in transplantation models, to kind of look at curing diabetes from the transplantation kind of point of view. Okay. Which I think has, you know, that was back in, I think I moved over there in 2003. Mm-hmm. So that was quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. And they've made amazing headway in that space since. But I, I'm i thinking that, you know, transplantation is probably not going to be the silver bullet that solves type mm-hmm. 1 diabetes. Okay. Although... It is a pretty amazing technology. So that got me um, started in the world of kind of transplantation and primary cell culture, um, and I really, really boosted my immunology knowledge <laughs> mm-hmm. going through all that. Um, but I was working with the xenotransplantation team. So I was working with our islets, so pig islets, with the first instance testing those in a mouse model to see if I could cure diabetes. But then the idea was that if we work that up, well enough that it would eventually go for testing in non-human primates. Mm-hmm. Um, so wait, what does that actually mean? So uh, wh- what do you mean when you're – are you putting piglet stuff in into live mice? Yes. Yeah, okay. okay. Yes, that's okay. what it means. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so I'd, I'd um, spend my days um, collecting um, pancreas 
from donor mice or from donor pigs, mm-hmm. um, processing that tissue to isolate the islets. And islets are little groups of cells, kind of 200-ish cells, mm-hmm. and they are the business end of making insulin. So the islets are the insulin little factories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea is you'll collect those from healthy tissue, transplant it into diabetic animals, right, and evaluate whether or not it cures diabetes and and how long those tissues last for and how does the immune response react to that. And so the idea, the theoretical (coughs) idea for humans would be to transplant those islets and that would cure their diabetes because they'd be able to make insulin properly again. Okay. Yep. Mm. Okay. Yes. Well, I've not heard anything about it in humans, so. (laughs) (laughs) There has been. There has Has been a lot. Yeah, okay. I mean, so when people have accidents that damage their pancreas, Mm -hmm. for example, or they have some sort of acute injury to their pancreas, um, they'll get an autograft of their own islets back. So what we'll do, if if the pancreas has to come out, right, so this is, you know, for a restricted set of patients who are in a particular category of illness um, where they have to remove their pancreas. The pancreas is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, not only does it regulate your insulin um, by producing your blood sugar by producing insulin, but it produces digestive enzymes and a whole bunch of other hormones that help to regulate your metabolic state. So mm-hmm. you can't live without one. Mm. So if you need, do need to lose your pancreas, they'll do everything they can to kind of save some of that tissue and, and give it back to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the moment, they do autografts on a regular basis for these types of patients where they isolate the islets um, right. and then they'll transplant them back in, usually into the liver. So they'll okay. do a portal vein graft and inject those islets through the portal vein where they lodge in the liver and they stay in the liver. And usually, because they're their own islets, they don't get attacked and they don't die okay. and because they don't have diabetes yeah. they don't get attacked and they don't die yeah. so those yeah. that that kind of works for a while they'll still need um treatment to restore their digestive enzymes or they'll take tablets and, and drugs for that but at least their their blood sugar can stay can stay them. kind of mm. stable thanks to their islets being back in there yeah. Yeah. so it is a technology that exists isolating islets from pancreas tissue uh-huh. and it does get used it's just that when it comes to a type 1 diabetic, it's a whole other ball yeah. game yeah. because they're in a state of autoimmune disease and even if you put their tissue back in or if you put someone else's tissue back into them, they have cells that want to kill that tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're still going to need very, very strong immunosuppression. Is that immunosuppression going to damage that transplant before it's actually had a chance to do any, yeah. anything good for them? So it's it's a very, very different scenario. Yeah. So getting the balance right has been hard. Getting enough tissue has been probably the even bigger obstacle because mm-hmm. when you're removing the tissue from the pancreas, you don't get it all back. Mm-hmm. So usually you need at least two, but possibly more donor pancreas to generate enough tissue for a single transplant. Right. So again, that in itself is a problem when you're going to find two donors available at the same time that you can do the isolation from. So yep. it's yeah. hence our push or that group's push to use pig tissue yeah. as okay. a potential donor source. Um, and they were working with transgenic pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, so my professor at the time was part of the team that had developed the first tra- human transgenic pig for the HDAF, human decay acceleremic factor, mm-hmm. which was a – it's a protein expressed by human cells that protect them from complement-mediated destruction, complements one of your blood proteins that can – 
it's designed to punch holes in bacterial membranes and destroy mm-hmm. them, right? So when foreign tissue comes in, your complement proteins will recognise those foreign tissues as well mm-hmm. and destroy them. Right. So by having the pig expressing human HDAF, it's no longer a problem for complement, so it should last a bit longer Correct. in yes. a human. Okay. So that was one of the first things they did. But there were loads more steps forward in the making transgenic human transgenic organs okay. um, in pigs that followed suit swiftly after. But we were working with that one yeah. um, and they were doing all sorts of tests and things to how see how the organs last. Uh, it's pretty... Well, just the human HDAF... Uh, transgenic organs didn't last a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were transplanting kidneys. That was the biggest the biggest push from, from that while I was there. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And the best they got was 90-day survival, yep. which was right. still an amazing, yeah. um, an amazing outcome. But 90 days in the grand scheme of things is not going to um, be enough. No. Yeah. Especially for, for, for the person. cost and all that sort of stuff involved yep. and mm. then the stress for the person. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And this obviously yeah. was in a, a primate model. It wasn't in a human, obviously. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. A primate model being some sort of monkey or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a macaque. Macaque, yeah. Okay. So they had a colony there that they would yeah. use for mm. these. Okay. And what was your experience like working in a lab with live animals? Oh, look, it's never easy. Yeah. There's always so many things you think about, but... When it comes to doing basic research that you want to do for the scope of improving human health, there really aren't alternatives. Mm. And I think that that's kind of the reality of the situation is um, you know, ethics itself is relatively new in the scheme of things, um, but human ethics puts humans first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order to improve people's lives, you can't just automatically test in humans because then you're no. putting some humans' lives last. Exactly. Mm. And you're putting people in this situation where maybe if they can't afford things, they're more likely to go into a, um, a trial that's dodgy or, or something like that. So right. the reality of it is it does have to start in an animal, an animal of some sort. Yep. And it usually starts, I mean, it always starts in tissue culture in a bottle yep. and then the next mm-hmm. step will be a mouse of some description. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, there are loads of different mouse strains out there that have been developed and created so that we can study very specific human conditions. Mm. Yep. Um, they've been an amazing resource from that point of view. Mm. So do you come up against some opposition to that from activists? And- I haven't okay. personally. Yeah. Um, I think I've been lucky in that respect, but I'm not... Um, you know, I'm not blasé yeah. about, you mm. know, just using them because this is how I need to do it. Mm. Right? I really take care of the animals that I've had to work with. Um, I've had some transplanted um, mice that have received um, that have received islets right. that have gone 260 days. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and you visit them every day <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and check their blood sugars and do all mm. those sort of things. So you do, you know, value 
mm. what they provide. I mean, yeah. I couldn't do it without them. Yeah. yeah. None, none of us would probably be here without animal research, unfortunately. Yeah, mm. certainly. I'm we, not- we all want the new vaccine. We all want the scientists to fix this, right? Yeah. And the only way that that can happen is if it gets tested in an animal model first. Mm. Yeah. And if you look at all the human ethics um, hurdles you have to jump through and the processes that, you know, are required to actually approve a drug, mm-hmm. right? many of those, in fact, all of those, well, you've got to start with a rodent model and have mm. X amount of data from rodent models and then you usually need to go to a canine model Mm-hmm. Right, a, a non-rodent model. Yeah. Right. So it could be a dog. It could be something else. Mm-hmm. But it's most often a dog. But it has to be mouse model first or rodent model first. A non-rodent model, and often it'll then be um, a non-human primate, depending on what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before it then gets approved for use in people. So we've all we've all borne the benefit of yep. of those processes, mm. but I. Don't take it lightly. Yeah, but that that also kind of ties in nicely to what you're doing now in that you're using human tissues mm-hmm. to supplement that kind of information where maybe a, a process like the one that you're creating could eventually skip the Absolutely. use of animals, animals mm. in testing. Yep. So if we can create or recreate that in a lab, then we won't need to put them in testing Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's what all our ethics people teach us, that we should be always looking for the alternative, always mm. looking for a way to replace mm. um, using animals in our research. And when we know so blatantly um, that using a road model is never going to answer our questions then we can't just go and use one just because there's nothing better. Mm. We need to take that next step and find what is better that is actually going to answer the question. So mm. I think, yeah, this model will be one way of doing that. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Do it quickly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Clock's ticking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll be watching out for your ideas, Grand, just Yay. to see if you get it in. Yeah. <laughs> Any wealthy benefactors out there? Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Particularly, yeah. you know, if we're talking RSPC, PETA, all that kind of stuff, this is the kind of thing that they could actually invest in yeah. that would help their agenda yep. as well. Yeah. That would be an interesting collaboration, wouldn't it? Yeah. Whew. Definitely. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, well. Um, Not just sepsis. It's going to change the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I thought we'd have a um, chat a little bit about, so you've got this great body of experience and knowledge now that you've mm. just been sharing a snapshot of with us. Um, and I believe that in your role at the university, there are students coming through that you have a bit to do with. Do you just want to talk about that a little bit my students yeah. yeah well i kind of i teach or i coordinate two units one in first semester one in second semester so first mm. semester um my life revolves around um the body defenses unit which mm-hmm. basically teaches microbiology and immunology to students who are basically pre-med mm-hmm. so they are either going straight into med school after that year or they're going into podiatry or dentistry. Mm-hmm. So they're professional pathway students. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that unit's all about giving them a first insight into microbiology. So that's bacteria and viruses, a little bit on fungi, a little bit on parasites. So they mm-hmm. get some kind of snippets of what's 
latest cool and trending bugs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, do they have to do lab work? Yep. Yeah. No. They, they get they get to do a couple of labs. Yeah. It's never enough. Yeah. I remember when I was going through, you know, so many hours of labs, and they were all so awesome. Yeah. And now. They get two. Yeah. Okay. But they get to grow some bacteria and do some basic identification mm-hmm. tasks, doing gram staining and things like that. Yep. So I think they really like those. That's cool. Mm. Assessments they never like, but that's okay. <laughs> 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 oh, <yes. laughs> yeah. And then in second semester, um, thanks to all the stuff I've been doing with the blood vessel and meeting all the people in the biomedical uh, engineering space, I was um, invited to help teach a master's unit in biomedical engineering where we're, where I'm teaching them cell biology basically and getting them, you know, familiar with cells and how cells grow and how cells interact with um, different matrices in culture. So we do some 3D culturing and all that sort of stuff. And they also get a whole bunch of expert lectures from specialists in the biomedical engineering field. And they learn some human ethics stuff too. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's what mm. I teach and... You know, being a coordinator is not easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. a lot to do. Um, yeah, I'm sure. But the students are great. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it only takes one or two students to kind of make you feel like you've got through to them and then mm-hmm. it's all good. It doesn't yeah. matter about the pain. It doesn't matter about <laughs> the hard work because yeah. it just, you know, I think our scientists and researchers, it doesn't take much to keep us going. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> we don't get much recognition. <laughs> so when you just get a little bit, it makes it all worthwhile and yeah. it carries yeah. over into the teaching space too, I think. Mm. How long have you been doing teaching for? Oh, six years. Yeah, okay. Ish. I think mm-hmm. I started helping out kind of 2018. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was that a requirement as part of the UWA research group? It was not a requirement, yeah. um, but kind of became a necessity yeah because okay. research funding dries up mm-hmm. and yep. there are bills to pay mm-hmm. and so you look for where someone else might be able to use you mm-hmm. to kind of supplement that salary and so yeah you know my my contributions to teaching and research have just oscillated over the years with some yep. really kind of crazy position descriptions <laughs> <laughs> over the years yeah um yeah. from a full-time researcher to uh, a zero percent researcher still doing research but having all their time taken up by teaching and mm-hmm. and, and other duties yep. um and then yeah trying to call that back with a little bit of grant <laughs> yeah. funding it's, yeah. it's the eternal struggle yeah teaching and research is yeah it's a it's probably the most common model for academics yeah um, so. definitely like, and it's it's interesting i always just assumed that um people who were teaching but teaching and researchers would be trying to do as much research as possible but then i spoke to a few he said no i actually prefer teaching mm. and i get kind of forced to do research <laughs> it's, you know yeah expected yeah there is that kind of odd if you're a full-time researcher you're supposed to be dabbling in research and if you're a full-time researcher you're supposed to be dabbling in a little bit of teaching mm. then universities kind of expect that a little bit but i think to be good at either of them mm. you need to just do that and right. i just don't understand because being a half-time researcher doesn't get your funding. Yeah. Right. The mm. competition is so fierce. That's right. That mm. you will never be funded if you're a dabbler. Yeah. Um, no, that's right. And ditto, you want to do the best by students. You want to give them the latest cutting edge techniques, flip classrooms and, and you know, all the latest kind of techniques for mm. engagement and all that. Mm. You need to be in it. You need to be that's immersed right. in it. And I don't think it's 
fair to kind of expect someone to be a 50-50 or a 60-40 or a 70-30. Do you need a teacher, university, or do you need a researcher, university? Mm. Support that (laughs) because then you'll get the best. That's it. And, yeah, I think a lot of people in academia probably see teaching as the poor cousin sometimes, but when you delve into education, it's actually a really um, serious discipline in itself. It really is. And the ones who are really good um, take real pride in Making Absolutely. sure they're up to date. Mm-hmm. And, and there are now fellowships of the Academy of Education right. at the university. You know, they, they are starting to take it seriously. Yeah. But in order to, to be a fellow of the Academy, you have to achieve certain things in yeah. your teaching. Um, and that takes effort. Yeah. Mm. And, and you can't just do that if you're a dabbler. Like, that's right. Again, yeah. I, I, I feel like the model's just... Yeah. It's, it's not in step with what the expectations are right now or what the pressures are on us right now to yeah. do our jobs well. That's right. And I actually really, really like teaching. I enjoy yeah. it a lot. But I really, really love research. Yeah. So now I'm kind of stuck in, yeah, yeah. I'd love to do both. <laughs> <laughs> but how do I excel at both? Yeah. That's the difficult thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the time it takes to really hone your craft in either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also part of the business model. I mean, teaching is a huge part of the income for universities now. Mm. It's a massive part of so, the income. But so is research. Research is too, yeah. And you just really don't know because they're not very transparent about how their income is managed. I assume that it's mostly through teaching, that teaching is where the bread and butter is. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the reliable income, I think. Yeah. Like they know more or less that it's going to come I in. Am, perpetually surprised when they come back with oh no but they bring lots of grants in so we can't let that person go because that's bringing a lot of money into the union like learning about the (laughs) process though so um i got a little bit of insight um into how universities get money from grants and things and it's when you hire new staff for research there's the salary that they provide and then 20 percent of that person's salary um has to go to the university as um, their like, support. Yeah. So, for example, uh, I, I was looking at a job that was maybe, I think it was about $65,000 a year and it was a part of a specific grant and that cost went up to about 90000 to mm-hmm. take into account UWA fees, um, infrastructure costs, like to get it's, me a, yeah, an office It's, a, it's actually like more that. like 30 or 35%. Yeah, so, so there's quite a large portion that goes to yeah. just their funding. I know about the yeah. 35% yeah. infrastructure costs, but not all funders need to pay that. Right. There's only right. certain funders that are that okay. are liable for that 35% yeah. infrastructure cost and you have to check every time. I don't yeah. know who yeah. is and who isn't. Interesting. It's, yeah, usually, particularly if it's a commercial relationship, they'll have to pay it. But if yeah, it's like okay. an NGO or a funder, yeah. like a government agency, they'll have it stipulated in their grant scheme that you you can't yeah. claim more than X percent yeah, from this grant scheme okay. and the universities have to accept that. Interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... It's not as simple Still. as saying, oh, that that's a $50,000 salary. It's yeah, like, no, it just like seems a- like they just have to give a portion of money away. Yeah. Like, you, university, just get this for, for having me there. You think about all of that money and, yeah. and that us researchers, you know, we're scrounging around for no to try and $10, get all dollars yeah. for this and, <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe five thousand dollars for that. I just want to go to that conference. It's yeah. just going to be three grand. Please, can I have it? No, you can't have it. You yeah. can't go to the conference. So yeah. it's hard, yeah, it and we hard. have to pay for publications, and we have to pay for going oh, to a conference if we want to actually the worst. boost our track record. So, yeah. so is that an expectation now that you guys pay for open access publishing? Um, or? 
open access is always the dream. Yeah. Uh, the universities have worked hard to kind of try and cover some of that yep. where they can, but I haven't actually been benefited by that yet. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm choosing the wrong journals to publish into. Okay. Um, there is a list. There yeah. is a list. Yeah. I know. There yeah. is a list. <laughs> <laughs> and publishing early in the year is um, better as well because all the spots run out yeah. by December. They, they use I up found that out the hard way. They use up all the cash. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, open yeah. access. I yeah. just think all of that, don't get me started, that's another scam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. lots of oh, predatory yeah. journals, behaviour. And, the journals yeah. that make so much money and then we have to pay to publish. Yeah. And then yeah. there's some They're of making them. Making money off of us. Well, there's some of them that that charge you just to review your article. Now it's no guarantee it'll get published. But the reviewers don't get paid. No, no, oh the reviewers gosh. don't get paid. They get there's a free, no other, they no get a free subscription. No for other industry days. in the world would somebody <laughs> review or do work for someone else and not be paid for it. But in academia, that's all. That's yeah. all kosher. Yeah. Yeah, I off. think as academics, we all just need to stop reviewing papers. <laughs> Let's <laughs> like, what are they going to do? They're going to have to. Come up with another, they're going to come up with and another And if we all way. stop, yeah. I know that it'll be a delay in research and things, but it's basically very similar to the writer's strike happening in America with um, yeah. creative arts. You know, <laughs> if we all just strike and don't do that free work, well, the, the system might change. I think the problem is that this, the way the system is now developed when there were a lot less journals around. Yeah. And so and then, the expectation was you would review and you wouldn't get asked all the time. It would be a couple of times a year or whatever. Yeah. But now there's just so many journals in each discipline that yep. it's just unsustainable. And they're all yeah. making money. Yeah. They're all making truckloads of money off the publications. We have mm. to pay them to publish for us. Yeah. yeah. And provide the IP. Yeah. I can't remember which <laughs> journal it was, but there was one publication publication company um, that earned more money than Microsoft okay. over COVID. And it's like, what are you – we're giving you free money. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. And well, I just want to build something to help people. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Pretty much. Well, hopefully some yeah, of that publication funding can find its way into – Mm. Grassroots research. Yeah, yeah I think it yeah. just goes into editors' pockets. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can only hope. <laughs> yeah. well, I, th- I think that's yeah. been a pretty good chat, Erica. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, it was I fun. Know, we cool. sort of sp- spanned a few different areas, and yeah, hopefully people will get something out of it. Hopefully. I hope so too. Yeah, yeah thanks Thank very you. much for coming in. My pleasure. And that was our conversation with Dr. We think, think? Erica Bozio. <laughs> yes, and uh, I, I I love how she's able to explain creating the um, vessel structures in in her like whole three D printed lab collagen business. Um, and I feel like there's so many practical things you can do with that. It's it's such a good theoretical idea, and I really hope that. Um, it kind of comes to fruition. Yeah, it seems like the the sorts of problems that it might be able to solve are so vast and, you know, as we touched on, the, the types of illnesses that we might be able to prevent with this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so obviously the first kind of protocol is sepsis, but there's so many other kind of areas in terms of uh, different drugs that we can use for, for treatments and all sorts of different things. And... Um, you know, blood supply is one of the really most difficult things in terms of organ transplants and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you can grow your own, it means you can connect your own as well, which is really, really cool. 
Yeah, so Dolly the sheep, here we come in human form, right? <laughs> human form, yes. <laughs> Complicated uh, uh, organ structures, here we come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, if people want to get in touch with us to give us their feedback on this episode or any of the others, how do they do that, Courtney? Yeah, so you can contact us on Twitter slash X at health means what. Uh, we have an email, meaningofhealth at outlook.com. We've got Instagram, we've got Facebook. Uh, so you can contact us any of these things. If you want to comment, feedback, uh, just have a chat with us. Uh, want to uh, uh, you know, offer yourself for a, a conversation or you know someone who would be really good on our podcast, then let us know. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening uh, and we'll be back soon with another hopefully fascinating episode. See you then. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.